Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. Father, we thank you for your mercy, that your mercy is new, your undeserved love is new every morning. And as we inhale your love, help us to think along with you as we study your word, that we might be like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin looking into the fall, many of us start a new calendar year. It's kind of like the secondary calendar year that we're programmed. Even if you have no kids in your house, we're still programmed to this school year that begins in September, but some of you are already into it in August. And, and we got to ramp up because it lasts nine months. And I want you to think through not just what you need to do organizationally, programmatically, in terms of your calendar, but who you need to be as you walk with Christ through this distance of the next nine months. One of the things I remember when I lived in New England was watching the Boston Marathon. I, as you know, I was a long-distance runner in high school, and, uh, but marathons were a whole nother world. I had no temptation then nor now to ever run a marathon. Uh, there was nothing magical in my mind about 26 miles. <laughs> uh, I, two miles was good. <laughs> uh, but I admired the people that would do that. And one of the things that if you live there, if you're a marathoner, if you've watched on TV this uh, granddaddy of the marathons that you know about Heartbreak Hill. Now, Heartbreak Hill is not uh, this monumental hill. It only goes up 91 feet. It's only a 3% grade. Now, if you've ever gone up a steep grade, that's like in a car over the Sierras, that's like a 30% grade. So 3% grade that's stretched out over a sizable distance is not a big deal. What makes it Heartbreak Hill is it happens after 20 miles. After your thighs are burning, after you're just, your, your calves are just like steel and there, there's no bounce in them anymore and all the straw has fallen out of the scarecrow, out of your hips and your, and your knees, then the grade happens. And it's the separation of the men and the boys. It's like, how do I get up Heartbreak Hill and go for six more miles? There's a Heartbreak Hill in Christianity. Truly, there is. Uh, Jesus said it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And that's the part that oftentimes you don't hear American preachers preach about. What that text means is if anyone would come after me, you must be willing to die for me. Rarely do you hear an evangelist say that. You know, if it's usually if you want a happy life, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to live forever, if you want to have a lot of friends, if you want to just, just, just live in party land the rest of your life, raise your hand and accept Christ. 
And we make this the fine print. Oh, and yet, by the way, you might die for Jesus. But most of us, we live in America and we think, really, how bad could it be, right? Uh, But I've discovered that the fine print needs to be the same size font as God has a wonderful plan for your life, that God loves you. But Jesus climbed Heartbreak Hill for you. The disciples tried to stop him, and he went to Calvary for you, climbed that hill and died for you. And I've discovered that what you will die for is what you will live for. So as you go into this fall season to re-decide the decision that you've already decided that, yeah, I am willing to suffer because of Jesus. Luke says, take up your cross daily. You might have forgotten, but Jesus' very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. And that's usually what we deal with here in America. Nobody's going to arrest you, kill you, so forth. But it's the subtle rejection, the little gossip about you and and the fact that you go to church or you're a Jesus freak or, oh, no, I don't think we want to be with them. They're not so fun. They're kind of religious. Whatever they're going to say about you, uh, decide to buck up and lean in, uh, to be kind, to be loving, or the moments that we're given an opportunity to share our faith about Jesus Christ, to drop in, to step into the pocket and say, yeah, not obnoxiously, not arrogantly, but in love and kindness. Yeah, this is, this is who I am, and this is what Jesus has done for me. Paul said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this is not for the people in Iraq, uh, China. This, this is for you and I to decide, and we're going to use Paul's life to instruct us as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. So we find ourselves in Acts 21, beginning in verse 17. Remember last week we were studying the will of God and Paul's decided, contrary to everybody else, the will of God was for him to go to Jerusalem. So now we find Paul in the heat of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul And the rest of us went to see James. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Not James, the brother of John, the fisherman. Uh, He was already dead. He, He, by the way, died for his faith. But this is James who shared the same mother, Mary, but a different father. I'll let you think about that. And... uh, The hint is virgin birth, okay? So James grew up with his elder brother, Jesus. We don't know the age difference, but he didn't, you know, would you believe that your brother was the son of God? 
no matter how amazing, how perfect, you know, just a blah, blah, you know, just can't quite wrap my head around that one until Jesus rose from the dead. So James ends up being the elder statesman of the Jerusalem church, the lead guy to win Jews to Christ in Jerusalem. And they were coming to faith in the Messiah Jesus by the thousands. And he becomes the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The next, so he, he went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So remember this, the three missionary journeys Paul has been on, taking the gospel all the way through modern-day Turkey, eventually into Greece, and wanting to take it to Rome, and eventually to Spain. They're hearing something that only the prophets foretold that all the nations, including the islands of the earth, would one day come to know the God of Israel. And it's happening. So Paul is relating that to them. And when they heard that, they praised God. But then they related to Paul how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. So two different cultures, the Jews being zealous for the Torah and in the various aspects of the Torah, but the Gentiles being zealous for God, having no Torah background and being instructed, as you remember from the Jerusalem Council, now that you pagan Gentiles have come to faith in the God of Israel, we're not expecting you to be Jewish. But this is what we do expect. Abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from drinking blood, and, you know, and they actually go into detail. Drain the blood out of the meat before you eat it. And um, relax. It's, you know, I know. We don't even like to think of animals anymore, you know, but in their world, it was just a part of their world, you know, farmers, ranchers. And then the third thing is um, that they would, where where was they? Sexual immorality, blood, and, and idols. If you're prone to bow down to the tiki gods in your garden, stop it. Uh, that there, there is just one God. So... Two different cultures, probably in two different languages, in two different forms of dress. And this becomes a prototype of how the gospel now goes into all the world, reaching all the different subsets of cultures around the world. Jesus is very portable and transferable into all cultures. And so he says, regarding the Jews that are zealous for the law, they have been formed about you, Paul. That they say you teach all Jews that are living in the Roman Empire to turn away from Moses, which obviously wasn't true, and telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So what shall we do? So there's this false rumor about you, Paul, and you're here. This is trouble. You could be a powder keg. They will certainly hurt here that you have come. So do what we tell you. So they decide, the elders of Jerusalem, 
that there are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, pay the expenses of them to have their heads shaved. Barbers are expensive. Then everyone will know there is no truth in the reports about you. So you're going to look very Jewish. You're going to have taken a Jewish vow, and you're going to have paid for these guys to have their purification rites, and, and, and it would include several different water dunkings that were right, kind of these large spa bathtubs that were right at the base of the temple that they would go through on their way into the temple. So Paul is going to lead them just to proclaim that he is still Jewish, and he knows how to become a Jew to Jews Greek to Greeks. Then it says, everyone will know that there is no truth in what is being said about you. And so in verse 25, we read, as for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, uh, from meat strangled, uh, meat of strangled animals rather than drained blood animals, and then finally from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took them in, purified himself along with them. Then he went into the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So it's all on the register of the temple. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, saw Paul at the temple. Pause. I think it's imperative that you and I learn to be world Christians and and missional people where we live. We have so many subcultures right here in San Diego that oftentimes we expect everyone to become just like us. I'm a Calvary Chapelite, and if they're going to follow Jesus, they have to become just like me and dress very informally and and, uh, wear flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts. Uh, Why? Why would they become? I'm a Presbyterian. They need to become just that. I'm just always going to be Presbyterian. I'm always going to be Baptist. That's just who I am. They need to be. I don't understand this self-centeredness of everyone. I'm just who I am, and they need to be just like me. How about entering into their world? I'm a Republican. Now I'm going to really meddle. I'm a Republican, and they, if I'm, if I'm going to relate to anybody, they have to become a Republican first. I'm a Democrat, and they have to become, hello? What if God did that for you? I am deity, and if they're going to live in heaven, they're going to have to become God too. Hello? He crossed that infinite gap. He became not only a human being, he became a Jew. He ate kosher food. He worshiped in the synagogue and the temple knowing that one day he was going to win Buddhists in Bhutan and Tibet to Christ. He became all things to all men. And he calls you and I, and I'm not saying go out and sin and, and repeat all the sins that everybody else did. Never say that Mark Foreman told you to do that. But 
to hang with your neighbors, to be with them, to not be the goody two-shoes and the judgmental, but to say, you know what? I want to walk in your shoes, be with you, because one day I want you to be with me and the Jesus that has loved me. And Paul lived by this motto, radical person for the first century, all things to all men that I might win some. So then we come to this section where the seven days are up and he's in the temple. And it doesn't take long. They stir up the, the Jews, see Paul in verse 27, and they re, the ones that have come from the province of Asia, and that would be probably the city of Ephesus, which is Asia Minor, uh, they realize it's him. This is the guy that we've got to stop because he's taking this Jewish God out into the Gentile world. And all these Gentiles are coming to faith in our God. And so they raise a ruckus. And it says they stir up a whole crowd. They, they seize Paul shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, against our law, and against this place, meaning the temple. Besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. And they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city, and they assumed Paul had brought him into the temple as a Gentile. And the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul, and they dragged him from the temple and immediately shut the gates of the temple. So Paul is now outside the temple getting beat up. I have been on the Temple Mount where there was a ruckus, and I can only imagine how big this ruckus would have been. If you visit Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is this, this huge plateau that was filled in by King Herod, built these huge walls to support this huge plateau. If you could imagine about 45 football fields, all stacked up. So we're, we're, we're talking like 200 yards wide and then uh, maybe uh, 2,000 yards long. I don't know the exact dimensions. And, and it's this huge plateau. And then on this plateau was built the temple. So the plateau that exists today is the same plateau. That part, the temple is gone. The, the Muslim Mosque of Omar is there. And another uh, Muslim site is there. But nevertheless, that was the Temple Mount. And so one time when I was up there, there was a ruckus that arose because it's largely filled with Muslims now, but some Orthodox Jews decided one day, hey, this is our Temple Mount, and we're not going to just settle for the Western Wall worshiping down below at the Western or Wailing Wall. We're going up there. And oh my gosh, the tension between uh, the Muslims and those Jews. And, and suddenly they were just screaming and yelling and coming at them and attacking and, and guards and everything had to come protect them, usher them back off of the Temple Mount. Well, now picture that only the Apostle Paul. So Paul is 
is receiving this beating, not the first time in his Christian life, and while they were trying to kill him. So what, what was going on? <laughs> you know, and so all of this, they're trying to kill him. The commander of the Roman troops hears the uproar in the city, and he at once took some officers and soldiers, ran down into the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul because they themselves don't want to be arrested. The commander came up, arrested Paul, ordered him to be bound, put in chains, and they asked, who, is, who was he and what he had done? Some in the crowd shouted one thing, another, and since the commander could not get out the truth from the uproar, uh, he ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The, the first, uh, what is it in a rock concert when uh, the mosh pit, but the, when the rocker drops into the crowd and they, they pass him, whatever that's called. Crowd surfing, yes, thank you. Something I've never tried in church, you know. I remember the School of Rock movie where he jumps out into the crowd and they all step aside. <laughs> Let him crunch to the ground. So Paul's crowd searching, uh, surfing and the crowd kept shouting, get rid of him. Off, 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 as they do in Britain. Get rid of him. Persecution. Paul, should I go to Jerusalem? Should I not go? He thinks God's saying, go. Friends think he's saying, don't go. He goes, and now it's happening. Persecution could be the end of Paul's life. But Paul understood that this was going to happen, and he's ready for it. Just to finish up this one section, it says in verse 38, the commander asks, Paul, after he discovers Paul speaks Greek, he says, aren't you the Egyptian that started the revolt? And he says, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, no small city. Let me speak to the people. And now realizing uh, Paul is of higher stature than he thought he was, uh, the commander gives Paul permission. So now Paul is at a platform up some stairs away from the crowd and, and he leans probably on the railing, beckoning them, and now he speaks to the crowd. And he says, brothers and fathers, this is the moment Paul has lived for. He has wanted so badly to preach to his own people. He loves the fact that God has called him to the Gentiles, but these are his cousins. This is his family, his own DNA, his own flesh and blood, and this is the moment that he's longed for his whole Christian life. And so he steps into it, he leans into it, and he says, brothers and fathers, with respect, notice the familial language, not friends, no, family, brothers, not not you men, but no, my respected fathers. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet because Aramaic is the home language. That's what we speak as Jews in our house. We speak Hebrew in 
the temple and the synagogue, but we speak Aramaic, the language we learned when we were in Assyria, modern-day Iraq, in captivity. We learned Assyria, uh, uh, we learned Aramaic, which is the sister language to Hebrew, very similar. And uh, so he begins to speak, and he says, I am a Jew, born of Tarsus, of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, stuttered, studied under Gamaliel, and was thoroughly trained in the law of the... There is no higher pedigree. This guy is saying, I've got the PhD in the Torah. Moreover, he says, I persecuted the people of the way, which means Christians. I am the chief persecutor of Christians to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and the council can themselves testify. They know me. I even obtained letters from them to go to Damascus to punish people as far away as Damascus from Jerusalem. And then he tells them his testimony. Folks, push pause. When you don't know how to share your faith in Jesus, just tell your story. I know a lot of us think, oh, you know, I got to remember the apologetics lesson I learned that when they say this, I say that. When they say this, I say that. In, in the heat of the moment, oftentimes, I don't, I don't know what to, like, why do you go to church so much? Isn't that like, that's a lot of waste of time. A guy said that to me once. <laughs> I said, well, actually, one of the reasons I go is I'm a pastor. <laughs> the other reason, it's the best hour of my life. So what would you say? Why are you a believer? Why do you believe that nonsense? What do you believe? The best thing you can do is tell your story. Well, I was searching for love. Well, uh, I, I came across a Bible in my hotel room. Well, I had a friend. Whatever your story is, and you know my story, I was an idiot, accepted Christ, and now I'm not so much an idiot. <laughs> Whatever your story happens to be, it's the pre and, and post test. Pre-Christ, I was this. Christ met me, came into my life, and forgave me, lifted my shame, and gave me a new life. They can discount everything you will say, but they cannot discount your story. It is what courts stand on. It's the testimony of an eyewitness. And you are the supreme eyewitness of what happened in your life. And Paul says, I heard a voice as I fell to the ground, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. What I find interesting is they didn't yell or get upset about the mention of uh, Yahshua from Nazareth. That's very Jewish. Many Yahshua's living in Israel. Uh, Yahshua is the Jewish name for Jesus that Paul would have used. It's the name of Joshua. 
And he was from Nazareth, and everyone understood Jesus of Nazareth was Jewish. I don't know why people don't understand that today. Uh, people think that Jesus was somehow a Gentile, that the 12 disciples were Gentiles, that it's always been a Gentile religion from Rome. It, it's, it, it's, a, it's a faith that was birthed in Jerusalem among Jews, and probably it's estimated that the first 70,000 believers were all Jewish. It's a faith that sprung right out of Judaism. And all my Jewish friends who followed Jesus, the Messiah, often call themselves completed Jews to make clear that we didn't become Gentiles. We are more Jewish than we've ever been. So they didn't react to this, but watch where they do react. Jumping down to verse 21 of his preaching and his story, he says, then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Bingo, you said the Gentile word. Ah, you know, you cannot go into the house of a Gentile if you're a kosher Jew. Uh, you cannot eat the food of Gentiles. You, it's, it's a great distinction to try to keep yourself clean and kosher before God and so when he says the word Gentile, they go ballistic, and they begin chanting, rid the earth of him, rid the earth of him. And so they have to rescue Paul. The sermon is over. <laughs> and they order Paul to be taken to the barracks and to be flogged. And Paul then plays the Roman citizen card, and he says, by the way, is it legal to flog a Roman citizen? As Americans, you cannot be, uh, you know, imprisoned without a trial. You have to, you just can't, the government just can't go around locking people up. There has to be uh, an, an accusation they committed crime, and then you're waiting the trial, and you're, you're innocent until found guilty, allegedly. And so Paul plays that card. I'm a Roman citizen. And the man realizes, ah, I can't flog him. He says, how did you get your citizenship? I had to pay for mine. And Paul says, I was born a citizen. So this is the first uh, instance that I want you to think about, Paul being arrested for his faith. So let's think about you for a moment. Any number of settings. You're with relatives, and, and, and the, thing, the faith thing comes up this Thanksgiving. You know, it starts with, uh, Mabel, you're the token religious person. Would you uh, say whatever it's called, grace, or, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, or whatever <laughs> you guys do? And it starts up after that. You know, I can't believe how Christians voted this way this last cycle. I can't believe how you Christians, you know, it starts up. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? That's the kind of persecution you and I have. And if we will face up to the fact that Heartbreak Hill is coming, then you can lean into it and say, this is part of the deal. I take up my cross and follow him. 
I don't get belligerent. I don't get red-faced like a tomato and my veins popping out of my, my neck and calling them names. Please, if that's where you're going, stay quiet. But I can speak the truth in love. I know what you're thinking, you guys, but what I found is that Jesus loves me. I know what you're saying, and there's a lot of things I don't understand, but what I do know is that Jesus loves me. Listen, persecution usually comes when people with a contrary belief system feel threatened, and they need to maintain control. That's what's happening here, and it's what's always happening around the world, even here. I don't like the way you live. I don't like the way you vote. I don't like the way you think. I need to keep control. And so in this moment, I'm going to put you down. Or in China, at this moment, we're going to stop your underground church. Or in, in this moment, in Egypt, under the Muslim Brotherhood, we're going to burn down your church. Persecution because you have a different belief. And notice I don't say because you have a belief. It's a different belief. Even the agnostic and the atheist have a belief system. It's a belief system just like you have a belief. It's a faith just like you have a faith. Only the person decides their faith is the legitimate faith and your faith threatens. So we need to squelch it and put it down, to maintain control at all costs. And then usually it's backed with a rationale. If we let the Christians, they, they would just destroy the world. If we let the Christians, they will do whatever to our, if we let the Christians, so we, I am God's messenger to tone down the Christians. And thus it begins. So the rationale is usually Christians in, in the Muslim world, they go against the holy book. Uh, in the Hindu world, Christians will upset the other gods in the land, particularly this is the, the view uh, in the rural part of India. In the, in the city part of India is you're going to upset the whole caste system, and the caste system is the means by which we control everybody in the country. And so we can't let you choose what caste you're in by the religion you choose. You have to, to stay within our Hindu caste system. Or if you're in China, you are a threat to the big brother of the government. The government needs to be your benefactor and your God and your provider. And you are talking, telling everybody else there's someone bigger and better than the Communist Party, and that's Jesus. So we need to squelch it. When I was a freshman in college, uh, in junior college, or we used to call it community college in Santa Ana, one of the things that provoked me to become a Christian is I heard uh, my English teacher, uh, you know, it's just getting general ed out of the way, and I taking English, and I hear my English teacher say, as far as he was concerned, all Christians should be locked up. Now, this was in 1969, 19, yeah, and, and I thought, 
Wow, that's a strong statement. Why would someone be that anti-Christian? Sounds like something right out of 2018, right? And I decided, I'm going to investigate this. Persecution. My first trip to Nepal uh, back some 26 or 7 years ago, um, we were were inducted into the persecution that goes on in the Hindu world, both India and Nepal. And uh, I was so surprised to find out that in, in the rural areas, evangelists that were planting churches would be beat up. Uh, neighborhoods would find out about this person that was having a Bible study, and they'd just beat the living daylights out of them and sometimes kill them. But equally, in the city of Kathmandu, the Maoists were gaining political power, and the Maoists were threatening the Christians as well because that was not their ideology. Their ideology was there, there was no God. So on the day that we were supposed to leave Kathmandu, we, uh, we were told by our Christian hosts that um, it wasn't going to be safe to fly out of Kathmandu. Uh, you know, we said, well, we got to leave. That's our ticket. We got to get there. And they said, well, we're going to have to improvise. And I said, well, how so? And they said, well, it's too far to walk, uh, but there is a moratorium on all vehicles that any vehicles that are found traveling on the road will uh, be burned. The drivers will be pulled out, beat up, and, uh, and the vehicle will be burned. I said, well, okay, so what do we do? I said, we can hitchhike. We can, uh, we can hop on whatever. And, and they said, no, we'll take you. Uh, so we got up at 3 a.m., uh, drove through the streets of Kathmandu without the lights on, and made it to the airport. And they let us out. And then, you know, you spend the day waiting for a 4 o'clock in the afternoon plane. Uh, But what we saw from the the airport window was was crazy. We saw all these plumes of smoke rising in the city. And we decided, naively, that that we had time. So let's just walk out of the airport and, uh, and see what's going on. So we walked several blocks down to see this crowd around a bus. And all the people that had been on the bus pulled out, and the, bur- the bus is on fire. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is a real world out there. It's a real world that is anti-Christian at times, and, um, and anti-anything that's not me. That's why I'm so passionate about protecting freedom of speech and freedom of religion in America. And culturally, not law-wise, but culturally, we verge sometimes on losing our freedom of speech by how we treat other people that speak a different language. So I will always protect the atheist. I will always protect the cynic. I will always protect people who have different views of mine because I want them to understand I need to speak my view as well. Freedom of speech. Is, is at the core of, of, of what's important in a nation. And I love the fact that our more recent uh, Secretary of State is passionate about encouraging partners around the world, other countries, 
to either protect or establish freedom of speech uh, and freedom of religion. Did you know that people that sign the United Nations Charter to join the United Nations Charter, they sign a statement that they believe in religious freedom? And some 40 to 60 nations don't practice it, but they sign it. So as friends, we as Americans can say, come on, you guys. Uh, I love the fact that um, uh, at least one of the Gulf states, one of the Gulf Arab Muslim states, uh, has propagated religious freedom and encourages Christians and Buddhists and people of other ideologies to come and worship in their country. They're trying to set a model for the rest of the Arab world. Persecution. So what happens in this story? There's a kangaroo court. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 23, aren't I moving fast? I'm so proud of myself. So Paul is now given this opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin. So for Paul, he's thinking, this is even better. I get to speak to the primary congress of all of Judaism about my faith in Jesus. So he looks at the Sanhedrin and he says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, what he's just simply saying is I have tried to follow the Torah. That's all he's saying. But at that statement, the high priest winks at the guard that's standing next to Paul to tell him to slap Paul in the face for having said that. Now, that's a tough way to begin a sermon. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> what happened? Ananias disagrees that Paul has served God with a good conscience. And it's a step of intimidating him right from the beginning. Well, you want to see Paul's feistiness? You know, when, when someone reacts without any forethought, you kind of find out who they really are. And um, so Paul <laughs> immediately reacts, and he says, uh, and I love the fact that Luke was there to record it. Uh, he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding him to strike me. You just broke the law by what you did. And they say to him, you dare to speak to the high priest that way? And Paul says, oh, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. What? <laughs> you didn't realize that he was the high priest? I don't know. Uh, you know, if that was something Paul didn't realize uh, and the high priest had changed while he was in, in Turkey, or if Paul was uh, just as a matter of words saying, uh, Sorry, guys. Let's start over. So in verse 6, Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, he called out to the Sanhedrin. So now he goes to a different strategy. He says, you know, I've got to move beyond the idea that I'm going to give this great Billy Graham message. Uh, I've got to figure out how to come out of this thing alive so that I can continue to preach. And so he has a strategy, and he says, I stand on trial today because of my hope 
in the resurrection from the dead. And immediately dispute breaks out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly now is divided. Now, for those of us that don't understand the political difference, the theological difference, Pharisees believed in miracles. They believed in angels speaking and preternatural beings being out there. Uh, They believed in the resurrection from the dead, that God was alive, that God could do these things. And Paul was of that theological persuasion. So you would say from a modern-day theological perspective, this is not political, this is theological, that they were conservative, that they actually believed in the miracles of the Torah, right? The Sadducees were theologically liberal, that they thought, ah, that was back in the day, Moses believed in miracles and everything. We know that miracles really didn't happen. That was just kind of the way they express themselves. You know how liberal theologically people do that today. Jesus didn't really walk on water. He was just really the first surfer that was standing. He was standing on a board. He really didn't. He really didn't. He really didn't. And so, you know, it's, it's because we're enlightened. It's not reasonable. It's not scientific. So if it's not reasonable and scientific, it never happened. And I become the judge of what God can do, which makes me God. So they were liberal. So the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in angels, and certainly didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Now, if that's your religion, that nothing can happen but morality, then that's a difficult faith. Just try harder. One way to remember is because they didn't believe in miracles, any of these things, they were sad, you see? And that will help you remember how to differentiate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Paul gets them to start fighting amongst themselves, and the dispute becomes so big. I'm right, 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 that that they have to rescue Paul now from the Sanhedrin Congress. And the the commanders, uh, you know, he takes Paul, and he's afraid of him being torn. What I learned from this little section is I believe it's good for you and I to have strategies in our mind of how we would share our faith. Some of you, uh, you've read apologetics books, you've, you've studied, others of us like, I, I don't know, I don't even know why I believe, I just, I just think Jesus is a cool name and that he loves me and he died for me, that's all I know. So we have different views and strategies. And I would just encourage all of us to stretch ourselves to have some starting point. So if you have the opportunity to share your faith, what would you do? I told you, number one, tell your story. Another way to think is what Bill Bright introduced, which was the four spiritual laws. It's just four things to remember. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Number two that there's sin in the world, brokenness, and that keeps me from God. Number three, Jesus died uh, for my sin uh, to become a bridge back to God. And number four, if you believe on him, you can be saved. Voila, there it is, the gospel put in simple form. Uh, For me, there's a lot of, I, I oftentimes will just go to their point of need 
So if someone's saying, you know, hey, my marriage is breaking up, a lot of those going on. Hey, my kids, I don't know what to do with my kids. Uh, I'm sick. I don't know what. To... There's a lot of brokenness in this world. And I can be the guy that says, hey, can I pray for you? And that's kind of an inroad. I said, I won't do it now. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything else, but uh, is, it, is it all right? Or sometimes, usually I'd say 75% of the time, they say, no, pray right now. <laughs> and they can be the very people that told me they don't believe in God. No atheists in foxholes, you know. When you're in a point of need, yeah, I'll take anything. So that's a great way to think about this. Another strategy to share your faith is the point of longing. Everybody, every human being cannot escape it. We long for purpose. Have you ever been to planet purpose? Why do you long for purpose? I don't know. I just, I'm, I long for meaning. We long for justice. Have you ever been to planet justice? No, we, we strive for justice. We've never seen perfect justice. We long to love and be loved perfectly. Have you ever seen it? No. But I have this longing. C.S. Lewis says, if we long for something that we've never seen, it's reasonable to think that we were made for what we haven't seen. We were made for God. We were made for heaven, where there is perfect love, where there is perfect justice, where there is meaning and purpose. These are just simple, simple things uh, to to just talk with people about. But Paul had a strategy of how he was going to win people to Christ. And then we come to the divine intervention. This is probably the part that you and I are most interested in. If I am somehow persecuted, if I am somehow in trouble, will God step in? And the answer is, he often does. In Stephen's case, he stepped in and took him to heaven. And because we have counted the cost, that remains a possibility for you and me. But in Paul's case, the Lord stood near Paul, verse 11 of chapter 23, and he said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Yeah! I was right. It is the will of God I came to Jerusalem. I was supposed to testify. Jesus is giving Paul this big attaboy. Don't you want to get that attaboy from God? It's just like, well done. You stayed in the pocket. You didn't flee from persecution. You spoke my name in the crowd and to the Sanhedrin. So what happens is that Paul is visited by his nephew. He's in prison in the barracks there. Paul's nephew, which is Paul's sister's son, uh, comes to Paul and says, I heard of a plot. They're going to kill you tomorrow. Forty men have taken a vow to not eat food or drink water until they have killed you. And they have met with the Sanhedrin and told the Sanhedrin, asked the commander, that you might come and speak to the Sanhedrin one more time. It's in that moment that you're delivered to the Sanhedrin that these men, uh, 40 of them, are going to attack you and kill you. 
And so this message is the boy is taken to the commander. He relays the message to the commander. The commander says, thank you. Don't tell anybody you've told me this message. And that night at 9 o'clock, when no one was suspecting, he put 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and 200 soldiers, so 470 people, to march Paul to Caesarea uh, to escape being killed because Jesus said he must preach in Rome. And Paul now is destined to preach before Caesar Nero uh, to tell Nero the gospel. If you ask the question, what drove Paul to do everything that he did, all of his beatings, all of his persecutions, one of the answers is that he believed Jesus to take up his cross daily and follow him. He understood that when you share Christ with people, it, not everybody is going to say, oh, that's so cool. Could you do it again? That's all amazed that some will, but others will belittle you. Some will reject you. Some will want to make you embarrassed and feel shamed. But if you've already decided, predecided that Heartbreak Hill exists, um, you're okay. This, in fact, Mark talked about it this week. So let me give you some easy handholds of, of what to do, steps. And this is not in your notes, so you can write this down if you want. I would say, number one, pray thanking God every day for the crucifixion. I do that every day. It's a bloody religion. Somebody died for me, the Son of God, that I might believe. Number two, pray daily for opportunity and courage. Pray. God, open doors for me to share Christ with my neighbors. Open doors to for me to share Christ at work, at school. Open doors. And when the moment happens, when the big wave comes, give me courage to not, ah, I don't want to drop in. When the big slope comes, double black diamond moguls, give me courage to drop in rather than stand at the top like Goofy. Give me courage to say yes to God who died for me. I am associated, and I'm honored to be associated with the name of Jesus. Number three, listen to your friends. One of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians is we don't listen. God has given us two ears, one mouth for a reason. And so listen to their heart. Listen to their needs. Listen to what they're, they're talking to you about and offer to pray uh, for those needs that they share with you. That will earn cred in their lives with you. And then number four, with the people that are closest in your core, say, have I ever shared with you the most important thing in my life? You know, over coffee, just, hey, come over. And they can always say no, but I'd love to share with you. And, and, and you know, you don't buttonhole them. You don't uh, put the screws on them. You just say, hey, just thought because of the closeness of our relationship that you would want to know. And then when someone asks you for the hope that is in you, Peter says, speak. Why 
do you believe? Why do you? That's your, that's your moment. <laughs> the microphone is in front of you and that you will go ahead and share your story. There are people that have done this very thing all throughout Scripture. Esther comes to my mind. Esther, you could die. Yes, I could die. Or I could save my people. And she steps into the gap. Daniel, if you pray visibly in front of the, the king when he has decreed that you would not pray, you could be killed and throw it into the lion's den. Yes, I could. Let me close by telling you a story that uh, is firsthand. Uh, it's a story about persecution. It's a story about a way of escape. And it's a story about a man who continues to stand strong for Jesus. Some of you will remember the name Pastor Sema Maurice, who is a pastor in Cairo. He has spoken here on a number of, of occasions. But n I don't know if he's actually spoken here in the last eight or ten years. At any rate, a surge, medical surgeon, his wife is a physician as well, and he's called into the ministry. And he's pastored for all these years faithfully. So he's reaching out, bringing unity in, in the nation of Cairo uh, through kids' games and reaching out to the Coptic church, which is about 12 to 18 percent of the population, and the rest is all Muslim. And, and his reputation is huge, and his reputation is one of love and loving Jesus. You're only allowed to preach inside the church. You cannot ever share Christ outside the church. Two people approach him on the street one day who are dressed as Coptic priests. Coptic is like Orthodox. You would picture it as Catholic if you're raised in this country. And... Um, and they say, you know, we have come from the patriarch, and we wondered if we could have lunch with you. And Sam is thinking, oh, this is a great opportunity. Yet he gets, he gets in the car, and they, put, they sit on either side of him. And as he's listening to their conversation, he's thinking, these are not Coptic priests. What have I gotten myself into? And he realizes that he's been kidnapped and that their driver is a part of this as well. And they're not going to the section of town that they said that they were going to have lunch in. And what do I do? This could be the end of my life. Uh, well, there was a way of escape. Uh, they came to a signal that was longer than some. Sama did one of those things. Look over there. <laughs> Just like some comedy. Hey, what's that over there? And they all look over there, and he reaches for the door handle and flees the car and runs and runs as fast as he can and finally dives into some bushes to hide. The reason I know this story is I happened to be in South Africa at the time in a township there working with impoverished people in the township outside of Stellenbosch, and I get a phone call. And it's Sema. He says, Mark. And he's whispering, Mark, it's Sema. And Sema, what are you doing? And, and he says, he's, and he tells me the story. He says, I cannot, I cannot call anybody here 
because I'm sure they've tapped my phone. And, uh, and he says, I'm calling you. Would you call my family and tell them where I am that they might come and get me? Which I did, and Sama was rescued. He was given a way out. Now, here's the question. You're Sama Maurice, and you could actually go back to being a prestigious medical doctor again. <laughs> Surgeon, uh, do you continue to preach the gospel? Your days are numbered. People know you. They want you. This was, by the way, turned out to be the Muslim Brotherhood that was uh, trying to end Sammy's life. And Sema decides to take up his cross again and say, no matter what, I'm going to preach the gospel again. And Paul here in this story is hardly waiting to now preach the gospel again in Rome. And you, my friends, can make a difference inch by inch. It's a, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's hard. <laughs> but inch by inch, it's a cinch. Will we pray? Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us this day. Thank you that you climbed Heartbreak Hill for us and give us courage to incorporate Heartbreak Hill into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.